Welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast, where your host, Isabel Ross, interviews experts and athletes in the field of endurance sports. Isabel Ross is a three-time Australian long-distance mountain running representative at the World Championships with a best finishing place of 10th female. Twice Australian trail champion, she has won the six-foot track marathon, run a sub-three-hour marathon, and won a 24-hour track race overall with a distance of 198.7 kilometers, as well as competing in and winning grueling ultramarathons in rugged, mountainous terrain. Isabel has raced all over the world, including participating in the notorious Barkley Marathons. Isabel is an Australian and USA-accredited endurance coach working with athletes of all levels and is a certified UESCA ultra running coach. She's also a personal trainer and podcast host. Are injuries or niggles ruining your enjoyment of running and hindering your performance? Get on top of these and see the specialists at Health and High Performance. Utilising the latest in technology and with a wealth of experience, the team at Health and High Performance can assist you with all your running, injury and performance needs. So get back to enjoying your running and achieving the results you are capable of. Head to healthhp.com.au forward slash run or find them on Instagram at healthhighperformance. Health and High Performance are located in Montalbert, Melbourne, but are available for telehealth appointments not only Australia-wide, but also around the world. Contact them on their website to find out more. Wild Earth Australia are the online store to help you make the most out of the outdoors with top quality gear at great prices. Peak Endurance podcast listeners can use the discount code PEAKENDURANCE in all capitals to get 10% off at checkout. Head on over to wildearth.com.au to get everything you need for your next adventure. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Episode 113 is an interview with Stephanie Case. Stephanie is a human rights lawyer, ultra-distance runner and women's rights advocate with expertise in conflict settings and humanitarian emergencies. In 2009, she gave up a career in corporate law to work for the United Nations in Afghanistan, Palestine, Malaysia, Switzerland and the United States and for non-governmental organisations across Africa. She founded Free to Run in 2014 with the aim of ensuring that women and girls in areas of conflict are able to safely and boldly engage in outdoor adventure and develop the skills necessary to become leaders in their communities. Recently, she was awarded the Meritorious Service Medal, Civil Division, on behalf of the Governor-General of Canada's office. This award celebrates Canadians who have performed an exceptional deed or activity that brings honour to Canada. They recognise remarkable contributions in many different fields of endeavour, from advocacy, sorry, initiatives and healthcare services to research and humanitarian efforts. The contributions can be innovative, set an example for others to follow or improve the quality of life of a community. In this episode, we discuss her charity, how she trained when she was in Afghanistan, how we met at Barclay and her experiences racing, particularly Tour de Gion. This was such a fun chat for me. I hope you enjoy it as much too. And if you do enjoy this episode, please go on over to Apple Podcasts to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps grow the audience and the show. Thank you so much. Also, we have a winner for the Great Southern Endurance Run competition. Laura Marshall answered the question, describe the feeling you get running in the mountains. Her answer was, 
Simply, I feel alive. My heart pumps, my head dreams, and my legs take me to nature's wonderland. Running in the mountains is a visceral experience. It challenges me. It feels physiologically hard, but it is mentally and emotionally fulfilling to me. Great answer. Thank you so much. And she has chosen to enter the 100 miler. Have fun, Laura. I know you will. Peak Endurance Coaching will help you achieve your running goals through providing customised plans that reflect your commitments in life and your athletic history. You'll become fitter, faster and stronger whilst becoming part of the Peak Endurance Coaching community. Don't waste a minute of your running journey. Email me, Isabel, at peakendurancecoaching.com.au to get a program designed just for you. Enjoy this fun chat with Stephanie. Stephanie, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Yeah, it's so good to see you. I know, it's been a long time. Um, but before we get into how we met, can you just tell the listeners a bit about yourself, your athletic background, and how you got into running and ultra running? Sure. So I am a human rights lawyer. I work for the United Nations, and I also run a charity on the side that operates in Afghanistan and Iraq, because uh, most of my work um, with the UN has been in and out of areas of conflict. And I started ultra running, oh, now about 13 years ago. I ran my first ultra. It was a multi-day race. Um in the four desert series or racing the planet in Vietnam. And I just fell in love with it. I basically ran one marathon, decided I want a bigger challenge. I signed up for an ultra marathon and, and that was it really. And then ever since I've just been looking for bigger and better challenges. <laughs> Do you think there'll ever come a point where, where it's so big, you can't, you know, like it's too big. I mean, that's the goal, isn't it? Like, I think for me, that's the goal. Find a challenge that actually is too big. And then, you know, you've hit your limit and then you've got something that you can work towards. But honestly, every time I finish a race and you always feel like you don't have any more to give when you get to the finish line, but of course you do, because it's just a mental thing. And there's a sense of accomplishment when you get to the end, but there's also that, you know, question in the back of your head, like, well, if I finish this, like, could I have gone further? <laughs> yeah, and, and then, yeah, and, and also it's the, the whole, well, I can finish this now, so what's next, I guess. Is yeah, like, yeah, it's a terrible spiral. <laughs> yeah, I know. About the work that you do for the UN? Yeah, so, um, you know, I say that I'm a human rights lawyer because I think that's just the easiest way to explain it, but I'm not going into court or acting like a traditional lawyer like you would um, in Australia or in the United States or Canada, where I'm from. Uh, Basically, I specialize in areas of conflict. And in my last post, I was in Afghanistan in charge of protection of civilians and child protection. So basically, um, the teams and all of the different um, provinces of Afghanistan, they were documenting every incident of the armed conflict that resulted in civilian harm. So people who were killed or injured or what have you. And I would use that information. I would use the information on the trends on specific incidents to actually go to the parties to the conflict and get them to first acknowledge the harm that they had caused um, and in some cases provide compensation, but also try to get them to change the way that they were conducting war so that civilians could be better protected. So that that was a pretty interesting job. Um, 
Yeah, but basically the, the work of international human rights um, is looking at the relationship between the people, the people who have the rights and the duty bearers, the people who are in power. So whether it be governments or armed groups that are in charge of a territory and you know, making sure that those rights are being respected. And when they're not, that's when grievances can build and, and people can resort to violence. So yeah, it's a pretty interesting career. What was it like dealing with those kind of people though? <laughs> well, you know, um, I think actually my the start of my career in corporate law helped me because, you know, when you're dealing with people, I used to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in New York. And <laughs> when you can deal with a lot of the business types in, in that setting, you can deal with anyone because at the end of the day, you're, you're just talking to people. Yes. And yes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what I always fall back on is that if people are talking to you when you're from the UN or when you're from an NGO, it's because they see some kind of value in it and, and there's power in that. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Now you founded your charity Free to Run in 2014. Can you tell the listeners a bit about that one? Yeah, so I first went to Afghanistan in 2012. I was there for a year. And, you know, I didn't go in with the intention of wanting to start my own organization. It's actually, I've got no experience in that. It's a really difficult thing. <laughs> but um, I had, through my work and through getting to know um, some Afghan women at, you know, one of the shelters that I was supporting, um, you know, they were quite interested in, you know, the running I was doing. I was raising money for, for this women's shelter. And... You know, they just expressed all of this interesting curiosity and desire to, to do what I was doing. And I had come into Afghanistan with certain assumptions that like running was a Western concept or, you know, that this wasn't something that people who are faced with war were faced with bombs and like really significant problems. Like why would they want to do something like running, which I think many of us considered or we're realizing now, especially through COVID is a luxury. Yeah. And, you know, what I learned, uh, it's a it's very obvious common sense concept, but, you know, in a place like Afghanistan or other places that have been subjected to conflict and war, people are still living their lives, you know, they're still growing up, they're still getting married, having children, going to school, going to work, they're still living. And, you know, they, they want the same things that, that we would want as well. And so... Yeah, I tried really um, talking to other established organizations about incorporating more outdoor sports programming for women, because in areas of conflict, women and girls are always disproportionately affected. Um, and in places like Afghanistan, you know, they can be really confined to the home. And in a lot of places, if they go outside, they need a male chaperone or they wear a burqa, you know, that kind of blue tent that that really covers their their face and the actual physical act of being able to go outside and be visible in public space that's what can really change the perceptions that people have um, of women of what they should be doing not just in sports but in work and politics and society and yeah everyone told me that it was too risky <laughs> and um 
yeah, I just kept coming back to it. I felt like I had an obligation, um, having worked in Afghanistan, having had the freedom, the freedom to run around in my own compound. Um, I, I felt like I, I had an obligation to at least try. And so in 2014, I was working in a, um, basically a camp for internally displaced people in South Sudan. I was living in a tent and I was putting together the business plans for free to run my, my charity. And I, you know, came up with these, with these concepts and I just started with, you know, one week of, of hiking in the mountains in Afghanistan. And now we are across five provinces of Afghanistan. We're in Iraq yeah. and we've helped thousands of, of women and girls. That's brilliant. Um, I find it interesting uh, when you said that people's lives still continue and it's really hard, you know, when you just see them on the news, just the, the horrible things to, to actually realise, yeah, they still are, you know, trying to have normal lives <clears throat> and anything that we can do to, to, to enable or help them with that, I guess, is a good thing. Now, and then you talk about, you know, a male chaperone or a burqa. So how do you get around that sort of thing? Do you need to have a male with you to run with them? Because that's also part of their, their cultural living, isn't it? Like, are, they, are women allowed to run without a male chaperone over there? Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. There's, there's kind of this tension that we're always playing with, which is really, um, we need community buy-in. We need right. um, people to understand you know, what we're doing and actually to support what we're doing and what the girls and the women are doing. We need the support of their families. We need the support of the authorities. And that's really, you know, from a development perspective, but also from a safety perspective, yes. you know, if, if we didn't get that, um, then, then it would be a lot riskier, but in order to get that, we have to be pushing the, the boundaries and that in itself entails some risk. So we have, um, you know, people in the organization who actually go out and speak to fathers, speak to families, speak to mothers, um, and actually explain what we're doing, um, the benefits of it. And sometimes they'll be in and sometimes they're not. And they'll wait to see, you know, if friends join in, what, what, how they change, what the benefits are like for them, and then they'll be allowed to join. So it's, it can be a process. Um, but what's so cool is seeing not just the change of the girls and the women in the program, but how the, the fathers and the mothers change as well. And, you know, they see how much more confident, um, you know, how much more engaged the girls are when they go through the program, how much more helpful they are. And they learn all these skills because it's, it's not just about running outside. It's, they learn conflict mediation. They learn um, communication skills. They learn leadership skills. They learn how to be assertive and express their views and communication. And, you know, their families end up seeing the benefits. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the biggest um, success that we've had and, and really our, our secret sauce that we have to, um, to keeping everyone safe. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I would have thought that was, yeah, the most difficult part of it is because I'm sure the girls themselves are, are keen as, but it's the getting the, the rest of the community on board. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you were awarded and I'll probably stuff up the pronunciation, the meritorious service medal, um, on behalf of the Governor General of Canada's office, what what that that award celebrates Canadians who performed an, an exceptional deed, um, 
or activity that brings honour to Canada, which uh, obviously is the charity. Can you tell us a little bit about how that all happened and, and what that means? Yeah, I mean, as a Canadian, I I was so overwhelmed. You know, I think um, it's it's not that it's a secretive process, but you're just not supposed to know. Someone not has to nominate you, and then there's a vetting process. And you know, it can go for a year, it can go for multiple years. Oh, wow. um, yeah, they they only give out a limited number per year, yeah. but it's really the it it comes from comes from the UK, it comes from the Queen. So you know, the Governor General in Canada is a representative of the Queen, and um, and. Yeah, I mean, I, I got a phone call at the end of last year, basically telling me that I'd that I'd won this medal and it would be announced um, and it would be announced in the spring. And and it, you know, I, I'm honored to have it personally, but I feel like I feel like it should be awarded to, you know, the Afghans and the Iraqis who are in our organization. Of course, it can't be, but I really tried to to share that enthusiasm with everyone else because, you know, going through COVID has been horrendous. I mean, it's been horrendous for everyone in the world, but especially in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, we had to pull out staff. Um, we weren't able to do any in-person programming. We had to switch to virtual and yeah. you know, to so just yeah. suddenly have some good news come out of it that like, hey, we're on the right track. We're we're doing something right. I think it, it gave everyone else a bit of, um, yeah, a bit of, a bit of oomph. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, although it was awarded to you, it, it brings um, more of a focus onto the charity anyway. So that can only be a good thing, can't it? Yeah. I mean, um, that's, that's what I was hoping to, to use it for. It's a bit, um, yeah, it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right that, that it comes to me, but you know, I have to become comfortable being like a conduit of, of things for the charity. Um, so in that sense, I was thrilled. <laughs> and um, how, like, you, you were bringing up about COVID with, with Afghanistan. How, how is it over there? Right now, especially with the Indian variant, um, it's pretty tough. I think it's hard to know what the true situation is because... Yeah of the lack of testing um, capabilities. Mm. You know, we saw at the beginning of the outbreak, it was really serious. You know, there weren't any ventilators. People were having to try to buy oxygen in the market to help, um, you know, any family members that were in the hospital. But it, it's really hard to know what the true scale or the true impact of, of um, the disease is. We just have to take all the precautions that we can. We can't force people to get vaccinated, um, but we encourage it because <laughs> it'll help us go back to, to normal more quickly. Are, are you seeing many people over there getting vaccinated? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think there's a certain amount of resistance to getting vaccinated um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Yeah. For, for various reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, Afghanistan is one of the few places in the world that still has polio because oh, of the difficulty with vaccinations. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. And, and there are many reasons behind that that probably go outside of the scope of this yeah, chat. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think um, what we can do as a charity is just give the information to allow people to make the best decision they can for themselves. and. 
And in the meantime, we have to take precautions and um, we've got a criticality matrix to assess both security issues and health and safety issues due to COVID. And for an expedition we have coming up this summer, you know, everyone's going to have to be tested before we go. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be, it's going to be tough for a while, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Now you were just saying you've got an expedition coming up this summer. So how long are you going to be over there for? I'll be over there for a few weeks. Um, you always have to to work in some buffer time in case something goes wrong. Um, but yeah, we'll be doing an expedition in the Wakong Corridor, which is just one of the most remote and beautiful areas. If Afghanistan, if you think of Afghanistan like a fist with a thumb, the Wakong Corridor is the, is the thumb. Okay. And it's a really beautiful mountainous region with, um, you know, we'll be hiking up uh, above 4,000 meters, I think up to 43, maybe 4,600, um, which will be, it's been my dream to do it ever since I went to Afghanistan, but I've never been able to, because you have to charter planes to get out there and get a bunch of yaks and <laughs> sounds like a really whole logistical yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Sounds yeah. awesome. I mean, you know, if you've got to do it, then yeah, that sounds like the right way. That sounds fun. Like, like yeah. Yeah. And you know, when I was in, I was based in Afghanistan for two and a half years up until this past August with the UN. And when I'm in the country with the UN, I can't get security clearance to do something like that. But when I'm in New York for the UN, I can go on vacation to Afghanistan. So oh, I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there we go. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Now, when you are, like when you have been over in Afghanistan and you've been training for ultras, but you're confined to a compound. How have you managed to make that work? Like, I get bored running around my local streets, you know, the same streets. How do you deal with, yeah. the, with the compound? <laughs> you know, you just, you have to get in the right mindset. Um, so there were a couple of things that I would do. You know, I was in this compound where the longest stretch of road was about 500 meters. <sighs> and that doesn't seem like a lot, but when I used to be based in Gaza, I didn't even have a compound I could run in if I could get a drive to another UN compound I would have I mean there wasn't even a stretch of road I would just do loops around the parking lot and I remember thinking like oh wow I had it so good in Afghanistan when I was there in 2012 I didn't realize how good I had it by having 500 meters <laughs> so when I went back to Afghanistan in 2018 I was like you need to remember that like this is a privilege to have 500 meters and you can always find more space so I would run in loops I would you know go behind shipping containers find little crevices in the compound to make things more interesting you know you could find little dirt piles that I would consider to be like my trail section and you know, if they were doing construction, there'd be like new obstacles. And it was like, what? you just, I thought of the compound as this like magical dynamic place where things were always changing. And if you ran at different times of day, it would look different. Um, so yeah, you just, you know, in some ways compound life is a lot easier because you've got work Yeah. and then you have your running and it's like, there's, there's not much else to do so it's pretty simple and they're like lockdown to be honest <laughs> <laughs> yes nobody it, exactly and yeah. you know in in some ways 
in normal life, I can get overwhelmed by all of the options that I have. And I feel guilty if I'm sitting inside and not taking advantage of all of the amazing things I can be doing. But in a compound, like there's almost a bit of sense of peace. You're like, well, this is it. And, and so you just find a way to, to do your workouts. And if you need to do a 30 K run and you can't actually get it done, then do 10 K in the morning, you know, walk hundred meters back to your room and then come back in a few hours, do another 10 K walk back to your room and then do it at the end of the day. You would do 30 K is around the compound. Yeah, I think the most I did was 50, but you know, really in order to run, you know, 200 mile races, you'd think you'd need to run a lot more and you, you do, (laughs) but you can also get by on just doing everything that you can. And sometimes that, that has to be, it has to be enough. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. It's, you've got to make the best of what you've got. You didn't have a treadmill. Yeah. So there were treadmills, there were treadmills there. Um, sometimes they get overheated and so you'd have to like switch treadmills but I had access to treadmills and um you know I really came to love running on the treadmill which sounds crazy but when we went into lockdown in France and we were only allowed out for um in November one hour a day and one kilometer from home I as soon as the announcement was made I went online and bought the last treadmill I could find on on the internet and that became you know, that became my, my privilege and my freedom to be able to run on a treadmill inside in Chamonix. It seems ridiculous, but Especially yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I was running in my laundry room with my face <laughs> pressed up against my hot water heater. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, the things we do to get around in, hey? <laughs> I know. But you know, you just, um, yeah, you just make do with, with what you have and, I found actually, well, I learned that the physical training is definitely important, but the, the mental aspect is huge. Yeah. You know, when I would come out of Afghanistan and I'd try to go running, I would be so, usually for the first couple of days, I'd be so stressed. My heart rate would be through the roof. I, I wouldn't be able to, to, you know, get 500 meters up the side of the mountain because I was just I don't know. It it was my legs would be fine, but my mind was just because of all the open space and the freedom. Is that what you mean? I think, I think it's you know when I'm in an area of conflict, you, you're dealing with a lot. You know, you're seeing dead bodies. You are talking with people who have lost their families. You're dealing with like really heavy issues, yeah. but you almost can't process it when you're there because you have to work and you have to get it done, and so there's this process of kind of grieving and de-stressing coming out, or I'd usually cry on the plane (laughs) coming out of Kabul. And then it it would stay with me for a couple of days. And it's stuff that you don't even realize you're carrying. And I think it's true, you know, for all of us, like no matter what stresses we have, even if it's not from a a war zone, you know, when we get out on the trail, sometimes stuff just comes out and, and it's stuff that we've, you know, we're like, okay, I'll deal with that later. And you just like, push it down. But when you're on the trail, that's, that's when it all comes out and it can come out in ways that really, you know, affect your, your pulse, your, your ability to move. Um, so I've started paying a lot more attention to that. And instead of forcing myself like, okay, you know, you should be fine. You can get this 20 K done. You can get this 40 K done. Being like, you know what? 
I actually can do 2K today and then go home, take yeah. a rest and, you know, try again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that that's part of it is being kind to yourself and allowing yourself to feel the feelings and, and all of that as well. Yeah. I think it's just figuring out when, when to push and when you really are redlining and you need to say, okay, this is, this, this is telling me. Yeah. So would you say you run mostly by feel? Yeah, uh, I do. I don't, I don't normally have a training plan. I find with my life style, it's pretty hard for me to have a training plan because <laughs> I don't know, you know, what country I'm going to be in or how I'm feeling. But yeah, I started working um, with a coach who helped me right at the beginning of my career, Ray Zahab. Um, the last couple months, um, I've taken a bit of a break because I was having some knee troubles, but I'm hoping to ramp up quickly again. Um, cause it, I, I found that during the lockdowns and during COVID, it actually helped to have someone else just tell me what to do to just differentiate the days. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But normally, normally I run completely by feel. Yeah. So do you do speed work or any quality style sessions? I should be doing speed work and I should be doing intervals and all of those things. And Ray will definitely make me do those. But when I'm left to my own devices, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I, it's cause I, I, I don't, even, I don't even know what I'm going to be doing the day that I go out. I will like put on a pack or maybe not even put on a pack and I'll just go out and run. And then, you know, three hours into it, I'll be so dehydrated. And I'm like, why didn't I bring a pack? Or like, why didn't I bring food? You know, you could have just planned this a little bit better. You've been doing this for over a decade, but you know, I just, I always come back to it that, you know, I do this for fun and um, yes, there are things I could do to be better. And Ray is going to help me do those things so I can be better. But at the same time, you know, the, if this is going to be what I do for fun, then I want the training to be fun as well. <laughs> and that's and that's a, a good point. And, and who knows if, you know, maybe that even helps you to run better. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I for me, it helps. I feel lucky that I don't have the pressure. I mean, I um, have a relationship with the North Face, but I have no pressure to to do well in races or anything, which is great. Um, which is, is really, really nice. And do well in the races that you enter. Yeah. You know, every time I do, it just always comes as a bit of a surprise, <laughs> which I think is the best way, you know, because if you go into a race, think, you know, wanting to do well or expect yeah. to do well, then, you know, it's not going to work. Yeah, so, uh, uh, we. I said we were going to talk about how we met. Now we met at Barclays, um, and yeah. um, and I remember at the time. Well, firstly, I was freaking out on the start line, and you were trying to talk <laughs> me down. <laughs> so thank you for that. But um, also, you told me, you know, in the days before and after, I can't really remember, but about all the amazing races you've done, and and you particularly uh, spoke about the Tour de Gion. Do you want to just tell the listeners about some of the amazing races you've done and in particular about the tour? Yeah. So the tour, I think is, it will always be my favorite race. 
Um, maybe until this September, but <laughs> Tour de Géant is a 200 mile, 330 K nonstop race in the Italian Alps. And it starts and ends in Cormier and it has 24,000 meters of climb. And I think they've readjusted it now to recognize it's probably closer to 28,000. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty different race. I think it's one of the few races where, you know, real mountain people, like not runners, but like climbers or just mountain goats will, will run the race because I think it really honors, um, the landscape, um, the remoteness mountain culture. It's quite different than any other race I've, I've done is you can't, you can't sprint through something like that. I mean, you, you were going multiple, multiple days. You've got 150 hours to finish. So that's like six days. And yeah. um, you have to figure out when you're going to sleep, how you're going to sleep, where you're going to sleep, your food, you know, there's a whole nutrition strategy, um, that you have to think about and you hit every kind of weather you hit snow, you hit heat you have to dress for winter you have to dress for summer you have to deal with all of these things that that don't come up in in shorter races and I love it because it's it's the closest race I've gotten to um even with the Barkley that's like complete self-sufficiency um I mean the Barkley is different because you have to navigate um yourself but many of us time out (laughs) so early on that you don't get that chance to to feel like you're, you know, really against the elements, just you and the mountains. Um, but yeah, I've done it four times and I've managed to get on the podium three times. The first time I did it, the race ended early, unfortunately, but yeah, the second time I did it, I got second and then two fourths. Um, and yeah, I've kind of, I've figured out I've basically figured out how to run that race. I've done it twice now in almost the exact same time, 98 hours and 14 minutes and then 98 hours and 17 minutes. <laughs> so I kind of feel like I figured it out and now I want to try something new. So there's, there's a race that I'm doing this September. I was supposed to do it last year, of course, but COVID. And yeah. um, so it's the upgrade on Tour de Géant. It's called Tour de Glacier. Yep. And it's 450K. Oh nonstop God. with um 36,000 meters of climb Ooh. or 32 I forget it's over it's in the 30s um and it's it? it was 450k did you say 450k so yeah. 287 miles and yeah. the cool thing about this one is that you have to navigate oh seriously and yeah so I navigate is it that you can it's like the um dragon's back where you have to choose the best course or you actually no so it's not it's not I don't want to say it's not that bad it's <laughs> maybe the, maybe the next stage um you I mean you can it's not like the Berkeley you can have GPS okay. but um on a lot of places I went and tested out part of the course last summer in a lot of places the, there is no path I mean you are on glaciers you're going over you know giant rocks and crevices and so in that sense you do have to find your own way in in yeah. some places but you can't like it's not like foul running where you can just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. sure. but and you know like going for days and days with little sleep yeah. it's like you're drunk and you know it might be easy to follow a gps path 
you know, when, when you're fully coherent, but to be able to do it in the night when you haven't slept in days, I don't know, it's going to be a real. <laughs> wow. Um, sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm honestly on, on April fool's day, I knew it was an April fool's joke, but you know, they have the tour three thirty, and then the tour four fifty. and on April fool's day, they put up like tour 1000. And I was like, <laughs> I know this is a joke, but I really want to do this race. <laughs> please. <laughs> Please make it oh, no, only you would say that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So yeah. it, is on, it is put on by the, the people who put on Tour de Jean. Yeah. Yeah. And is it yeah. run at the same time? Yeah. So we'll start um, on the Friday night and Tour will start on the Sunday. So hopefully everyone kind of finishes around the, around the same time. Yeah. But there's only, there's only four women doing the race. Oh, wow. So you can't get that in spot. Yeah. But you know, it's, I find I it a bit, yeah, I find it a bit sad because I agree. Um, in order to qualify to enter the lottery for Glacier, you have to have done tour in under 130 hours, oh, which already okay. limits the pool. I mean, there's only like 8% of the pool of Tour de Géant is women. And so then you get the number that I've done under 130 hours. And then the percentage of those people that want to run 450. And it's, it's you get four people. Not a lot of women want to do it. It's that not a lot of women who want to do it are able to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. of yeah. all of the societal reasons why yeah. it's tough um, to, to do the sport. And so we need to encourage more women to try the Tour de Gion. So, you know. Well, that. and we also need race directors to, to have more sensitivity to this. And some are, you know, I've been having conversations with um, various boards of directors on, on other races and also with the, with the North Face. But, you know, you're starting to see some initiatives now where they're starting to think about, okay, how can we arrange childcare um, during races so that if mothers want to do this, because childcare responsibilities are still falling primarily to and women. That annoys me too. Why, why is that only an issue for women? And I know. Parents too. <laughs> but it still is. And, you know, we saw this during COVID. We yeah. saw this during the lockdowns. You know, yeah. women way more commonly than men were leaving their jobs so that they could take care of the kids and do homeschooling. And then yeah. their careers are screwed. And, yeah. you know, do you think they have time to be able to go out and, and run trail races? No. Yeah. And it's also this feeling, you know, a lot of people say like the ultra running community is so inclusive and, you know, so welcoming. And I do agree with that, yeah. Yeah. but you look at the ultra running community it's primarily white and it's primarily male still. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's multiple reasons for that. And I, I think we need to be having more conversations about that. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that sounds um, really good. I was actually in a meeting with our um, Australian Ultra Running Association last night and we were discussing how to start getting more women in and we want to really start yeah. working on that. So, you know, I think just every little bit that, that everyone can do is, is really important. Yeah, we should talk about that afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, I would love to. Um, yeah, yeah. No, also when, when I tell people, because I... I always, you know, say, oh, the Tour de John, I want to do this is because Stephanie told me how awesome it is and how <laughs> muscles were breaking down and what your stomach was olive oil. Tell us about that one so people know that I wasn't just making it up. It really you <laughs> Oh, God. I, I, so many weird things have happened to me in this, in this race. Like, I, 
it's I can't even believe that I'm doing it again and more um but yeah I think it was in the second year I did it so the year when I I did my best I yeah second female and 14th overall out of a field of like I think 800 awesome Um, but yeah for a period of I mean it seemed like ages it was at least 12 hours I couldn't take down any solid food. I'd come into a checkpoint. I just like thrown up everywhere. (laughs) I was like, oh God, you know, I didn't want the medical team to to put a hold on me. And so I had to pretend that I was fine. I was like, I'm fine. And I just ran out and off into the night. (laughs) Um, As you do, this is not, don't do this at home. But, you know, I have the ability, you know, I, I, I've got like, I've got a booty, I've got thighs, you know, I I carry fat with me. So I know I can survive. Like I'm not running, I'm not running super lean, but yeah, it had been, I think about 12 hours where I just hadn't been able to, to eat anything. I couldn't, I couldn't chew. And yeah, when you get into that state of ketosis or whatever, you can smell, it's like, it's like this rotting, it's a very distinctive, like rotting fruit mm. smell. And that's that the that smell. What does that smell like? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like rotting fruit. I mean, oh, the gross. clothes that I wore, I had to throw out. Like you just, oh, really? you yeah, yeah, yeah. Like no amount of washing gets that out. Wow. And so I had to, I just had to think creatively. And, you know, I think that that's why I do well in these races. It's because I'm, I tend to be haphazard. I don't have a set plan. And so that means that I can just adapt. adapt. And so I said, okay, you know, if I can't chew, I just have to get calories in, but anything that I can, I can swallow. So I I called my mom and I was like, okay, you know, at the next checkpoint, I just need like anything I can swallow without chewing. I was like mashed potatoes, ice cream, whipped cream, like just go to the gas station and just like anything I can swallow. And she was like, okay. And I came up to a checkpoint. And it was like not a real checkpoint. They it was in the middle of the mountains. I think this was after the second night. Yeah. So I was going on the third day, I think. And they'd helicoptered in a couple of medics who were there with like some bread, some olive oil, and some dry biscuits. Fine. Yeah. And I came up and I looked at the olive oil and I was like, hmm. <laughs> this, we need to try this. And so I just this little Dixie cup of olive oil and the doctors were looking at me and then just speaking <laughs> Italian they're like no 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 and I drank it and I was like mm, like rubbing my belly and I poured another one oh. and just ran off like burping olive oil oh. was it foul was it hot? Oh, I mean it was like disgust like can you if you can like it was just drinking uh, but yes. that's like a couple thousand calories like calories yeah yeah it's a lot of calories. And if it doesn't give you diarrhea, then, then it was good. And it, it stayed down and it was what I needed to kind of get me, get rid of the, the muscle rotting. Ah, cool. <laughs> and then I came down. Yeah. And then I was able to eat the ice cream and then I took the whipped cream with me, like the aerosol can. <laughs> um, I took it with me up the mountain <laughs> And now still, when I go into races, people are like, oh, where's the whipped cream? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you just, you just do, you just do what you can to get through. I mean. <laughs> and I think that 
that's a, a, you're, you're telling us about that is a really good lesson in what we need in ultra running is to be adaptable and to just you know yeah. go with whatever it is that works because you can have the best plans in the universe but that yeah. doesn't matter when they all go to crap I mean I, I've done the dumbest shit <laughs> sorry, sorry I've done the dumbest <laughs> shit in, in ultras but it was just what what I needed to do at the time like the number of times that I have cut the like the shorts out of my skirts because I've been chafing oh and I'm God. like you know, I've been chafing so badly and I'm like, I don't know how to get rid of this. And I'm like, well, just, just cut out the shorts and, you know, no one will be able to see as long as there's no wind. And so like, I would just run naked for like, nothing, nothing. It's like, what, what's the worst consequence yeah. of that? Yeah. So people say about, you know, someone yeah. sees your bits, like it's, <laughs> you know like what's the big deal so I I finished I finished races multiple times pretty much naked western states I finished western states I was quite worried actually because I I cut the shorts out and it was like quite a short skirt and when you're running at the end you're running onto the track and there are some photographers like kneeling down and I looked at the photos after and I'm like is that is that a shadow or is that a what what oh, is okay. that exactly okay, you can post those ones on insta <laughs> it's all fine it's all fine but yeah i i think i think you you have to get to that point otherwise what the other option is dropping out yeah. and you know I'd, I'd rather show my vagina than drop out <laughs> Yeah, and you know what? Who cares? At the end of the day, like you said, so what? Yeah, yeah. Good on you. I, I love that. That's excellent. That's a really good. <laughs> yeah, the number of, of like skirts that I have in my in my in my wardrobe in my running kit with no shorts. They're just so like when you're in the middle of the race. How did you cut them out? Yeah. So you just when you come up to a checkpoint, if there's a medic, they will always have scissors in their kit. Yeah. Or in a refuge, they'll they'll have scissors. They will look at you very strangely. But yeah, once I I had swollen up. It was my third year doing um, Tour de Jean, and I I'd messed up my electrolytes. Something had happened, and I gained like probably twenty pounds wow. of just water weight. Like I was so big, I was so uncomfortably big, yeah. and like in my face and in my like stomach and my thighs, like, everything was just big, and I was wearing waterproof pants and they just, they couldn't contain my thighs anymore. And so I came up to one of the, the medical crew and I just got a pair of scissors and I cut my, my pants into a skirt. Ah, nice <laughs> I wasn't wearing anything under that either <laughs> so that I could just run freely. And when I finished, you know, it looked like I'd been attacked by a bear because, you know, I had like, it wasn't cut night. It was like jagged strings hanging down. Maybe this is getting too, I don't know. You didn't find your thighs rubbed together? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was kind of waddling, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I've got a really good, like, anti-chafing um, cream that basically another tour runner gave me and ever since then I, I haven't used anything else yeah so chafe x if you need i had it in barkley oh chafe x chafe x yeah it's a really small company um 
Yeah, I think they've been hit pretty hard by COVID, but I'm not sponsored by anything by them. Um, but I, I will, I mean, I have so many tubes. I basically bought so many tubes of this that they contacted my mom because it was all getting sent to Canada. And they were like, oh, just interested. You know, that you're ordering such a large volume. Are you ordering for a sports team? Just my daughter and her very capable <laughs> skin. <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, and, and, and like you said, you're not sponsored, but it's good to share products that actually really work. Yeah. I did have a relationship with them for um, a year or two. But I mean, it was, uh, it was just, a, and that ended a few years ago. I, and I would, I would just promote the shit out of them no matter what. Like I love this product so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll put them in the show notes, but I'll, I'll also look them up just for myself, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. good. <laughs> I mean, chafing is one of those things that can make you drop. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, really, it was my biggest concern going into any race that was longer than a hundred K. I just, you know, I, I have got very sensitive skin and it's one of those things that shouldn't stop you, but it can, because it's oh, so yeah. painful. Oh my so God. painful. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was, this was the only thing that's, that's really saved me. I, I got welts like in my butt crack <laughs> from my first year at tour and it was another racer, another runner who had come from the adventure racing background. And he gave me a tube of his chafe X and I was like, I am never, I'm not living without this now. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 The yeah. adventure races have all that sort of stuff nailed, don't they? Because they're exactly. Like long. Yeah. Exactly. So um, are you planning on going back to the Barclay? It's a good, it's a good question. So the first year I did it, the year that we met, um, it was right. That, what, did we meet in my second year or my first year? No, it was your second year because you wanted oh, to okay. So well, I was yeah, right. in 2019, I think. You're right. Yeah. So yeah, my first year I was going in right before I was going to Afghanistan. And then the second year when, when we met, it was after I'd already spent a year in Afghanistan on shitty right. training. Yeah. And I just, you know, I felt, I didn't apply the year after because I felt it's so... Like when you are taking a spot at the Barclay, yeah. because there's so few places, like you have to be at the top of your game. And I just knew I'd, I'd already tried to do it on Afghanistan training. And I just, I knew I wouldn't be able to give it my all. I mean, I could have made it work, of course, if that was my primary focus, but the way that work was and my stress levels I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this race justice if I, if I go back and it's not fair to, to take a spot just because I want to do it. Yeah. You can do the fitness work, but it's very hard to do the nav work when you're there in Afghanistan. Do you know that my navigation, surprisingly, because I hadn't really done any, my navigation was, was spot on the second time I did it. And I, like I navigated the whole way I had, um, yeah. yeah, So I, I actually felt really good about my navigation, but my fitness, my fitness wasn't there where I wanted it to be so that I could be faster. I think, you know, you tend to, because it's, it's not mountains and, you know, because I had a place in Chamonix and, you know, I raced in the Alps. I was like, Oh, well, it's just Hills, but no, it's, it's steep. steep. Surprisingly. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe one day I, I will go back. I think, I think you always want to go back and, and do better, but um, yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to be a lot stronger than I am now. 
And and but in saying that, you're strong enough to do 450 k's with 36 36 thousand meters elevation. Yeah, or 32, I forget. But I think, I'm sure I'll find some extra. Yeah. You know, um, that's more of a, an exercise in just pure stubbornness and persistence. Like you, you just have to have a real, I believe, let's yeah. see, but I believe you just have to have a really solid base of training. You don't have to be fast. You don't have to be super strong. You just have to be solid. You have to be able and be able to problem solve and deal with blisters, chafing, all of the little things yeah. that come with running day after day after day that could really break you. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that's what I'm hoping, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> How do you deal with this sleep deprivation in something that long? Um, yeah, in, in tour, I really redlined it. So out of 98 hours, I would sleep like maybe two and a half in wow. total, which wow. is really too little. I think, um, it's, it's too little because <laughs> you get very delirious oh, and you would have. Yeah. yeah, you really, you really lose it. And, you know, your emotions all over the place and you kind of fall asleep when you're, you know, on the death march going up. And from a safety perspective, you know, Tour de Glacier is harder. You know, there's roped bits, there's um, really, I think, dangerous bits in my view. And so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to sleep a lot more um, to have my, my wits about me. But yeah, I usually, I usually try to sleep um, at the top of a climb rather than in the valley because yeah. your brain falls asleep when you're going up yeah. and it's, it's easier to just get in bed and yeah. fall asleep right away but if you you know when you're descending your brain is active you're looking where your feet is going and then if you get to a life base or checkpoint and you want to try to go to sleep it'll take 20 minutes to kind of yeah. calm yeah. your body and your mind down and that's 20 minutes that you're wasting yeah. and then the more you think about the time that you're wasting the harder it is to fall asleep <laughs> exactly yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that'll be really interesting. I, I would love it if we could do another interview after that race just to find out what it was like. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I have no idea what's going to happen. I, but that's part of the, the appeal, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to try to, um, usually when I do tour, I try to give some updates from the trail, which are always hilarious to look back on. <laughs> you know, there was one time when I was just, I was singing in the middle of the night. I think it was the third night just to try to keep myself awake yeah. and I ended up putting it on on Facebook I think this was before I was on Instagram and I, it was a couple of years later maybe or a year yeah. later I was invited on to like the national radio um station um like the Canadian Broadcasting yeah uh, Corporation yeah in Canada and they didn't tell me, but, you know, I thought I was going in for this serious interview and mm -hmm. they used my singing oh. <laughs> as the intro to my oh. interview. And I was sitting there in the studio, just like, I, I cannot sing. I cannot sing. <laughs> so I, I now have the pleasure of saying that my voice has been aired singing on yeah, national well, radio. So you never know. You never know what's going to happen to this stuff. And that's what they say. Whatever you post is always out there, isn't it? So I, <laughs> so it's out there. I need I need to think about this more more carefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what? Once again, that that would have been 
you know, that's funny and that's good. And that's good that I put it on. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of an open book. I mean, obviously I have to be careful with my job at the UN, but I'm, I'm an open book. I mean, I think it's helpful for people to know that, um, that everyone struggles in ultras. I think we watch people who do well in races and you might not get to see all the behind the scenes stuff. And I'm very open with all of my behind the scenes stuff, how much I hate it during the race sometimes, how much I want to drop out, how hard it is. I cry, I throw up. I, I mean, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, people need to know that because otherwise if they think that they the people who are finishing and the people who are doing well are, are just breezing through, then, you know, no one's going to want to do this. No, that's right. And, and you're right. Because, because also, like you say, when you go into checkpoints, you've got to put on a bit of a happy face so that, you know, yeah. they're going to let you go through. And if that's what people see, they don't see the suffering out there. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of suffering. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, there is, and it doesn't matter what level you're running at, there, there is going to be suffering. Yeah. It's just part yeah. of it. So, yeah. so um, how do you recover? Or I mean, not that you know yet, but how do you recover from something that long? Yeah, I've had a, different experiences with recovering from tour. One year, the year um, I did my best, I recovered so quickly. I actually raced a month later. Oh, wow. And yeah, and I don't know, I don't know what it was. I I think some of the key things I can identify that helped was that I, you know, after a day of just kind of letting my body, you know, you balloon up because of all the inflammation of running for that long, but I just started trying to move, um, as soon as I could. And so I think two days after I finished, I just put on my shoes and went for a hike up the end of the course to watch people finish. And the inflammation went down so quickly just from moving, you know, you don't have to run, but I think active recovery is, is really important. And then, yeah, I didn't, I didn't push myself to run until I felt like it. And, um, and, and that depends on, on how you feel, but I think it's important to, to just get out, move, don't put any expectations on how far you're going to go, how long you're going to go, whether you're going to run or not. If you feel like running, just jog for a bit. And if not, then, then just go for a walk. And, yeah. and that yeah. helps kind of get your body back in, in shape, I think. Yeah. And so do you have any race plans for next year? Oh gosh. You know, I haven't even thought about next year because I, you know, I haven't raced at all um, during the pandemic. It was a, it was a personal decision that I didn't want to race until I was fully vaccinated. And so my last race that I did was Ronda Del Sims, which now has been canceled yeah. permanently. Um, and that was, yeah, it was July, 2019. They had the race directors. It's quite sad that race had been on for 10 years, but the race directors got such bad backlash when they canceled the race. And I think they offered a 70% refund that they ended up having to even go to the police to make complaints about some of the threats they were getting. So they ended the race, which is so sad. Um, Cause that was just a brilliant, really tough race in the Pyrenees. But yeah, that was July, 2019. And I haven't raced since then. So it'll be, it'll be two years. Um, so yeah, I haven't, I honestly haven't thought about next year. Cause I just, I need to remember what it's like to race again. I need to remember 
yeah. you know, that feeling of like excitement and panic on the start yeah. line, um, that, that feeling of like, oh God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And then you get through it. I need to go through all of that yeah. and then figure it out. Yeah. And then just see. Yeah. 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 And, and who knows what next year will bring anyway. So it's hard to make definitive plans, isn't it? And, you know, I never know where I'm going to be living or what yeah, I'm going to be doing. So it's yeah. that, that always makes things a, a bit tough. You know, I could still be in New York or I could be um, in Zambia or I could be in Yemen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Well, wow. Well, like I said, I'd love to catch up with you again after that race in September. So I hope you that. And thank you so much for joining me today. How can people follow you on social media if they want to see what yeah. you listen to you soon? Um, yeah, exactly. I think Instagram uh, is the best way. Um, I, <laughs> I've got to... I've got to change my Instagram name because it's there from when I was like 22, but it's oh, um, it? ultra runner girl. <laughs> I'll be the oldest ultra runner girl. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> and then, yeah, for, for my charity for free to run, it's um, free to run NGO, non-governmental organization. Um, so yeah, both of those. Yeah, it'd be great. All right. Well, I'll put them in the show notes. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, what did you think? I hope you laughed as much as I did. How amazing is she? I can't wait to hear all about Tour de Glaciers. What an amazing challenge that will be. Have a great week of training and racing if you're lucky enough.